The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Previously, we've spoken with award-winning photographer Nick Brandt and Tom Hill, the creator of the Maasai Predator Compensation Scheme, both under the auspices, vision, and mission of Big Life Foundation. Today, my guest is Richard Bonham. Richard is the co-founder and keystone of the trio of creators of Big Life's success, mission, and vision. Richard saw very early on the trends happening in Kenya between people, land, and wildlife. Richard, the son of well-known Kenyan game warden Jack Bonham, had a very early introduction to living the bush life and living with local communities, which by default means an intimate relationship with the wilderness and wildlife, and to understanding what conservation in the real world means and looks like. During intensive drought, poaching, and now the effects of modern life, and the many models and efforts toward protection of cultural history, and the shared landscape and resources between its people and the wildlife, both wild and domestic. Seeing firsthand the losses of wildlife, land use changes, and the conflicts between people and land and wildlife, Richard has been on a mission to bring innovative strategies and collaborative partnerships between communities, other NGOs, governments and national parks and other agencies where the underlying vision and mission is one where resources, wildlife, and the landscape supports the people and the engaging people in the support of conservation in a wide variety of pioneering approaches. Welcome, Richard. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Great to meet you, Eddie. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thank you. What I would like to do is just engage our listeners for a moment to go back and listen to the episodes with Nick Brandt and the episodes with Tom Hill because they give two other sides of what Big Life Foundation is about. And today we get to talk, as I said, with Richard, who is the keystone, the the main organizer behind what Big Life is today. So it might help, Richard, if you could give us just a little bit of your background, some of your history. Well, you know, as you said, Ellie. Yeah, I, I'm the son of a, one of the early colonial game wardens, and I was lucky enough, I suppose, to experience this, the Africa that, or rather, I saw the tail end of the Africa that the colonial governments found here. So what, we're talking, what, what, what time frame are we talking about? Well, you know, I, I, my first introduction to the bush was in the 50s. You know, you, a lot has changed, you know, you, 
and I think one of the fundamental things that's changed it is the population growth. In 1960, there were about 4 million people in Kenya. Today, we're looking at pushing 50. So you can imagine the ramifications that has had. So I've, I've sort of witnessed that change um, from going out into the bush with my father into areas which were just crawling with rhino. I remember one of my first memories was being treated by a rhino um, and all the big five around. And today, some of those areas haven't even got a rabbit alive left and they're just settlements and farms. So I've, I've seen some pretty major changes. In a nutshell, we're losing wilderness. And a lot of people here, when we go on safari, you know, they, they want to, to go see African wildlife because it's the only place that has it, for one thing, and its megafauna is astonishing. But it's also keystone and umbrella species for other wildlife and for the survival of the community's African people. And really, when you think about it, if that should fail, the consequences to the rest of the world if Africa should lose its wildlife, which is a very large income-making machine, so to speak. It's a business. Um, if it should lose it, but it also changes the ecosystem. So as you said, between the 50s and now, here we are at 2016, rapid, rapid changes have happened. And from what we learned with Nick and Tom, we need to address these changes in whole new ways. We need to think creatively and out of the box because the colonial model, for what it did work, it's not working anymore. Let's talk a little bit about how you came up with the concept and the parameters of operation, so to speak, and brought in Nick and Tom. What were you thinking at that time that brought these various skill sets and mindsets together to create big life? As I said earlier, I was sort of brought up with conservation being, you know, foremost in my thoughts probably. And I, I, I moved into the area where I'm living now about 30 years ago. It was a um, totally virgin area at that time. There was no settlement, no tourism, nothing. It was just a huge expanse of African bush. And I went in there to set up a small tourism operation. And that meant I had to negotiate with the landowners of that area who are all, all Maasai. Um, very different from, you know, national parks. This area surrounds Amboseli National Park and the foothills of Kilimanjaro. And they had what they call group ranches. Now, a group ranch... It's about 300,000 acres of community owned by um, families of Maasai and clans of Maasai. So I negotiated with them to build my, my tourism operation. Let me just interject here one second. Amboseli is in Kenya and Kilimanjaro is in Tanzania. So that had to be rather convoluted because you're doing cross-boundary work. Yeah, I'll come to that later. But okay. the main core of our operation started in Kenya, on, on the Kenyan side of Kilimanjaro. Ecosystem does spread across into Tanzania. So um, you, you um, got this. You negotiated with the Maasai um, in this area, which I understand from previous conversations is about sixty thousand people and a wide variety of communities and clans. So pulling that together to create a concession on a group ranch is not an easy task by any means, especially 30 years ago. 
It was actually, I found it quite easy, to tell you the truth. You know, I was, I was dealing with the Maasai elders. Um, half of them had never been to school. The other half had. Um, very wise bunch of owls. And um, they, you know, I went to them and, and said, you know, I wanted to develop um, a tourism operation which would, you know, help benefit them and bring them in um, revenue from, from wildlife. And they, they got it pretty quickly. Because you've got to remember, up to that point, they were seeing absolutely zero benefits from wildlife on their land. They were living with them in harmony, or semi-harmony, but um, they were seeing no benefits. And that's what I came to realize very quickly with the population building and people's, let's say, the, the indigenous people's minds changing from just a, a cattle culture into a you know, more of the sort of Kenyan national culture. Um, yeah, I realized that unless we started generating revenue streams, employment, and putting a value to wildlife, wildlife would have to give way, would give way, naturally. So, you know, as soon as the operation, the tourism operation started getting going, I, you know, I saw lots of obstacles in our path. You know, the first one was there was a lot of poaching coming across, not from the Maasai. The Maasai don't eat game meat. Um, so there were actually other tribes coming across the Chulu Hills and putting down snare lines of, you know, two, three kilometers long. They were charcoaling trees. And so I realized that, you know, we had to get that under control. But on the back of that, we also had to get the Maasai behind us and supporting us. And making wildlife valuable to them, a value to them. So how did you accomplish that? As, as we were talking with Tom and, and, and Nick and now you, the Maasai are pastoralists. Cattle is what counts. And so 30 years ago, there weren't as many cattle because there weren't as many Maasai. And now, 30 years later, cattle is a big problem. So we all know, typically... It is not a direct connection from the tourist dollar to the Maasai community and, and the leasing of the land or the concession. So it has to go sort of zigzag around before it benefits as a dollar in the pocket of a Maasai. Can you help us understand how that works, that, that path that the benefit takes in terms of dollar value from the tourist to the dollar value benefit that changes the Maasai perspective that wildlife has value even though it's not a cow and it's taking things from cows yeah it's a slow process it hasn't happened overnight and it's still very much work in progress um the first thing is as i said earlier the maasai in that era were cattle 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 they realized with education coming on board that you know there was the world was broader than just cattle. So one of the first things was employment, employing them in the, in the sort of tourism industry. And then that later rolled on into employing them in to become game rangers and then making education easier to come by. And that's a process that slowly, as we're speaking, bringing them more on board. So you, you mentioned game rangers. You have a bit of history in 
being game rangers, you uh, were very involved in the Game Scouts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it all started by the fall, really. As I said earlier, you know, I, I came across these snare lines and poaching and this and that. So literally, I you know, got some warriors, true warriors, and said, right, guys, you know, I want you to go up into the hills and start collecting snares set to trap animals. And I'll pay you whatever it was, you know, 50 US cents a snare for every one you bring in. And I think we employed four. That was back in probably about 88. And now I think we're up to 300 and something. So they were the forerunners. And then as I got to understand the, the depth of the problem, it, it made me realize that we had to become more proactive, employ more people. So we'd sort one area out and then we'd move into another and then sort that out. And it just came, it just sort of rolled out um, in itself. So in other words, as Big Life and the, the scouts themselves started to realize the benefit of removing snares, not necessarily keeping wildlife, but the benefit of removing snares, I'm going to assume or presume that they they generate this themselves, that they began to talk with each other. It's not all about you and Tom and Nick telling somebody what to do. These are smart people that they began to realize the benefit, the economic benefit, and the land value benefit um, to the tourists by removing snares. So it sort of organically would grow from community to community? Yeah, organic being the right word. Okay. You know, it started with employment. Got to remember that the master have an intrinsic um, value within their culture for wildlife. So it wasn't we had to convert them on that. They did realize that um, you know that they were part of the ecosystem, part of their lives. So we didn't have to battle that one. And as I said, they they didn't they don't eat wildlife. So yeah, it it, it just grew organically, and then. As we sorted one area out, we'd realized animals we were saving in that cool area were going somewhere else, else and getting killed. So we rolled into those areas and it, it, it grew slowly. And at the same time, we were coming behind that. You can call it law enforcement or what you like. Um, we were coming in with other programs, um, setting women's groups up so they could make money from jewelry to sell to the tourists. Um, education, trying to mitigate conflict uh, when it came about, which is pretty much all the time between wildlife and people. You know, you've got to understand when you live with, especially the big five: elephant, rhino, leopard, lion, and um, God, I missed one. Is that it? Elephant, <laughs> um, leopard, rhino, lion, cheetah, hyena. Yeah, you know, there's costs are associated. They kill people. Every year we have people killed. Um, they kill livestock, obviously. Um, they crop raid. They go into farms and destroy maize or, or whatever crops growing, tomatoes. So that was also very much in our focus, is trying to lessen the impact of that conflict. 
what we're talking about here and what our listeners need to understand when we're talking about poaching and we're talking about land use, it's not necessarily coming from the Western view of animal rights, animal welfare, and every individual animal counts, that we love animals. It's coming from a very different perspective. And this is really critical for people to understand that are not living your lifestyle that are not living in wildlife rich areas where it's not all controlled and managed that they move freely that there has to be a way to find a way of coexistence that works with the communities you're living with and this is what big life has done in as we just talked about a very organic and um, I'm not going to say methodical way and we're going to come into this a little bit more after the break that it comes into as you fix one thing or find a solution for one thing a whole crop of other things pop up so on that note a little bit of a cliffhanger we're going to take a short bake break so stick with us we'll be right back Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest today, Richard Bonham of Big Life Foundation. So, um, as I'd said before, please visit biglife.org and listen to the previous episodes with Nick Brandt and Tom Hill to understand the other sides of what Big Life does that creates this 
clever, creative, modern model to address conservation and all of its issues that we're faced with. And what we talk about on this program is conservation. It's a long-term process, and as Richard was saying in the first half, it's not overnight. It takes a long time to bring people on board. Even though they know there's benefits, it takes a while to create these models. And as we had said, it has a domino effect. When you go to solve one issue, then others crop up and you have to find ways to address those and keep the whole thing moving forward. So let's start here a minute about poaching. A lot of people in the West, in the Western world, where we no longer live with megafauna and, um, you know, dangerous carnivores everywhere, and that poaching is not just about killing elephants and rhinos and the killing of lions for retaliation or for trophy. Kenya doesn't have hunting anymore, so that's not really there, but lions still get killed. So poaching has a lot to do with the entire ecosystem, and you'd mentioned earlier trees. Help us understand how poaching, the taking of trees, is still poaching. I I think the the battle we've got ahead of us is not so much species conservation, it, it's more habitat conservation. Um, I also mentioned the expanding population, or exploding population would be a better term. And where you get this population growth is a need for land. The first land to go is the good land, the wetlands where you can irrigate, um, the forested lands that have got, got good soil, good rainfall, which also obviously is good wildlife habitat. So in all this becomes a grab for that, um, that those valuable resources. You know, it comes in lots of different ways. Charcoal, most of urban Kenya cooks on charcoal. Those, that charcoal has got to come from trees. Where do the trees come from? From wildlife habitat. So you've got to try and control that. Um, also timber. You know, there's a hunger for timber. A lot of the, the indigenous um, tree cover is is hardwood, so there's a huge value put on that. So the loggers come in and they take that. So, you know, there's got to be control to put on that. And, and most of, when we're talking about timber and logging, are we talking about taking it to build huts and, you know, local consumption? Or are we talking about poaching in the sense of illegal logging that is being exported to markets elsewhere? Uh, or both? The, yeah, both. You know, there's obviously a, a demand um, for timber in-country, um, but also hardwoods are in huge demand. And, you know, I see trucks coming down through Kenya from the Congo, literally truckloads, containers of, the, of it coming through, all just totally unsustainably cut. Um, So, yeah, it's a major threat that um, Kenya's um, facing, or Africa is facing. So are there no controls in in place? And I realize this might be a naive question. I'm sure there are technically controls in place, but what are the controls in place through the government and the ministries to put a check on this balance of unsustainability and as you just said you know trucks coming through from Congo aren't there any custom stops or is is this where corruption comes in or how does this manage to continue to go if there's measures in place well I think starting with Central Africa where the main 
timber is. Um, it's lawless. It's every man for himself. So from Kenya's perspective, it's goods in transit. You know, it's, it's just coming through Kenya. If they've got the papers out of, say, the Congo, for instance, um, that's, you know, they can't really do anything to stop it. So, um, internally, you know, we've got a huge charcoal trade, um, both for export and local consumption. Again, um, there are laws, checks and balances supposed to be there, but um, it's not really a- adhered to. Because I know when you drive along the road, you know, safari tourists, whatever, or working or people that live there, all along the side of the road, you see these stacks of charcoal for sale. Not one is licensed. Oh, not one is licensed. So, wow, we've got our hands full of a lot of issues here. So going back to what we'd started this section off, that here in the West, and I'm going to say the first world, Europe, whatever, um, and even where I live, I live in bear country and we have mountain lions and so does California. Mountain lions are coming back and our national parks are very geared toward human recreation. They're not set aside in concept for wildlife where that's a huge difference where most African national reserves and national parks are set aside for wildlife. So there is point one where it becomes a conflict for the people living around it. Um, who owns the wildlife and why can't we use these resources but we were talking about mountain lions here taking somebody and it's a surprise to us we don't think when we're recreating that something could come and kill us in Kenya it's very different in Africa wildlife rich places where you have lions elephants rhino leopards um, your average child is facing danger every day. The cows are facing danger. So let's let's talk a little bit about that mindset. You had mentioned an article you read about a woman in California that was killed by a mountain lion and it made it all the way to Kenya and that it sort of made you chuckle a little bit in ir- irony. I don't know if chuckle is the right word. Um, I, I couldn't believe that an incident like that could get to the Kenyan press when it's... a Conflict here is daily. Um, in our little area, I don't know how many incidents of conflict we have, um, but maybe 40, 50 a day in some form or other. And to, to hear about a girl mall jogging somewhere in California um, in the local press, you know, a bit of a surprise to me. Well, it's a rare thing here because mountain lions are so elusive. And for our listeners, we've done several programs on mountain lions, and more will be coming up. Um, for the every one person that is uh, attacked by a mountain lion or sees a mountain lion, it doesn't really talk about the hundreds of mountain lions that are just sitting there doing nothing and not bothering us at all and not interested in us. But in Kenya, Africa... It's a very different situation. You've got prides of lions, uh, predators, carnivores, that uh, have a lot of opportunities to take children, to take um, women, and to take cattle as Kenyans go about their daily lives. So how, and I know Tom discussed some of this, how do you address this across the wide area of your concession and your tourists, that's sort of a different subject, how you introduce your tourists that are visiting to this concept that you can't just go anywhere. And then um, how do the locals address this conflict issue to stay safe 
physical security? Um, it's such a huge um, subject. This. It but, is. You know, let, <laughs> We've got some time. <laughs> let, let's just start with um, financial implications. You know, the Maasai apostolists, they rely on their cattle, sheep, and goats for their livelihoods. Now, you get lions, hyena, whatever, coming in and killing them. So what are you going to do? Naturally, you're going to retaliate. And in the ecosystem, the Ambacilli ecosystem where I live, um, when I first got there, all the carnivore numbers were good. Um, they were sort of living in, in a sort of semi-harmony, um, you know, with the livestock owners, the Maasai. And sure, you know, they would go and kill them if they... Um, you know, took too many livestock or whatever. Um, but then, you know, thing, you know, poisoning took place. The the animals, the, the livestock became more valuable, so they were no longer um, prepared to tolerate, you know, the the offtake that they were having. So, I, I witnessed uh, a plummet in the numbers, where basically they decided that they weren't going to tolerate them anymore. Their cattle were more valuable, and so they started spraying them in larger numbers and poisoning them. Um, they, they, the, the numbers started getting down to pretty much local extinction. And that's where I sort of stepped into with the community and said, yeah, what are we going to do about this? And, you know, they came back. And it was not rocket science. Well, you replace the animals we're losing to the carnivores and we'll live with them. We don't have a problem with that which was basically the seed that sowed the um, compensation program, which we've now got running over about a million acres of the ecosystem. And it's worked. Um, you know, despite numbers across Africa, um, I think it, the numbers right now, they're saying 43% down in the last two decades online. And I think in Kenya, and well, East Africa, 60% down. But we've got a, a, a sort of recipe, I'd like to call it a recipe, that, um, you know, through this compensation, the people are, are now prepared to live with them. They've stopped killing the lion especially. And, you know, we've, we've got a huge population growth, probably one of the only growing lion populations in Africa today out of, um, you know, controlled, canned environments. That's a really important point that, once again, I think our listeners need, need to understand. We here in the West, we hear these big numbers, you know, 50%, 80% decline of lions in their range states. Well, that's a huge area. And it doesn't take into consideration, as you just said, the local increases. So from near extirpation in your area around Ambicelli to now, I think recently you just wrote an article, there were seven cubs born, um, I think in June, it was. it's on your website, and so now you've got a local increase of lions, which is going to naturally create, as we've just been saying, an increase of encounters, otherwise known as human-wildlife conflict, where individual people and individual lions are going to run into each other. So, as Tom explained to us, the compensation scheme works very well, but that doesn't really address the individuals. So, when you've got a child out there with the cattle, 
because once again, people need to understand Kenya doesn't keep their cattle in concentrated food lots like we do here. But you've got individual communities and each family or each village has their cows. So how do you dress this on an individual basis and and work with the people when when really life is at stake? Do you have like a problem animal control for repeat offending lions or is there an agreement that we will not kill these lions but you need to you being big life need to help us create physical security yeah the, the population has grown incredibly you know we're looking when, when we started in that area we don't know exactly how many land we had left but optimistically maybe 30 um, we're probably looking at 150 plus now I'd even go as far as saying maybe 200. So, yeah, there's greater conflict, but the people are prepared to tolerate it for a lot of different reasons. First of all, they they get paid for any livestock that they're losing to, to predators, so that helps soften the blow. And then around it, there's a lot of other layers. We have... Um, you know, we're employing pretty much every um, household has got somebody employed in the wildlife industry, whether it's a game scout, maybe it's a sponsored um, kid at school, maybe it's a teacher in a school, maybe it's a, a school that's been built by tourism, wildlife money. So there's all these different revenue streams that's having an impact on all those households. So they're prepared to say, okay, we lost that cow, but we got it got replaced, and there's other benefits. So they're now looking much more. Um, we're talking now about carnivores, but you've got to talk about wildlife in general as an asset rather than a liability. And I think core in the whole big big life philosophy is generating as much of that as we can. This is a huge step. It's pardon the pun, wildly successful. So it begs the question, and I, you probably think about this yourself, why aren't more NGOs, governments, conservationists, the, the Western organizations that are coming in and implementing projects, why aren't they thinking in this big picture frame of reference? Well, I think, I think they are. I, I, I think everybody's got their head around the fact that people have got to benefit from wildlife in order for it to survive. Um, but maybe we're one of the few organizations that actually put it into practice and make it happen on the ground and have the feet, get the people who are living with wildlife um, see tangible benefits. We've got a long way to go, a heck of a long way to go. Um, but But still, we've you know, I think we've made the inroads into it, and people are looking at wildlife in a much more positive way. Well, this is fabulous because, if once again, if our listeners listen to Nick and Tom, Nick Brandt and Tom Hill, along with this episode with Richard, it ties the whole picture together, and you'll be able to understand 
why this model works. So we're going to step away for a break and then we're going to come back because I'd like to explore a little bit more about this long way to go and what's ahead of us for the future. So stick with us, check out biglife.org and see what all they're doing and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Richard Bonham, the um, major force behind the creation of Big Life. But as we've talked about um, with his two Co- with his co-founder Nick Brandt and their other fabulous mind, Tom Hill, they have made a working model that is contemporary in the way it addresses not only the people not only the wildlife, but truly addresses the security and benefits for the people who live in this area. So we had ended the last section here talking about heading toward the future. Um, there is a lot to be done, as you had said, Richard. So you've set up a model, that, and Big Life has been in operation, I think, for 10 years now. And uh, you're saying there's still a lot to be done. That goes into that you're one of the few organizations that works cross-boundary between two very different countries in terms of government, and um, but the wildlife moves across between Kenya and Tanzania and the area where you are, Amboseli and Mount Kilimanjaro. You were at the Kenya Ivory Burn on April 30th, and you personally knew a lot of those elephants, and they also burned a lot of rhino horn, and you have rhino in your area. Let's talk a little bit about the rhino security and the elephant security, and whether you think... Kenya itself, in its approach to 
um, saving elephants versus caching ivory and having to burn it. Will we be able to protect elephant and stop this uh, on, the, on the local side, not just the demand, and the rhino there? Well, f- first of all, Kenya's done incredibly well on anti-poaching generally. When you look at statistics across the continent, um, Kenya's by far you know, the leader in terms of seizures. And I believe if you look at our elephant numbers, the proportion of elephants we've lost through poaching. So we've done really well thanks to you know, Kenya Wildlife Service. Um, and you know, I, I spe- a lot of organizations like ourselves, Save the Elephant, Sheldricks and you know, there's a lot of people working very hard with the, the wildlife service to contain the situation. There isn't a disconnect between KWS and how it operates, and let's say the communities where you are. There's, it, it, it's a smooth transition. I wouldn't say smooth. Um, you know, there's ups and downs, um, but generally, the wildlife service here is well tuned to the people and. They're open to, to working with the likes of Big Life to s- smooth whatever problems which come up every day over. Um, but, you know, the root of the problem is, of course, when you're talking about elephant and rhino, it's a value. You know, you're talking huge numbers, um, which, you know, even outweigh numbers associated with, you know, the black market trade and drugs. So, of course, there's going to be demand. And when you've got those values, there's going to be people after them. You know, we're talking right now, if a poacher goes out to get a rhino, he could walk away with um, $30,000, $40,000 in his pocket, which in the third world is hitting a jackpot. So that doesn't make life easy. But having said that, you know, I, I think, again, when you look at Kenya's numbers, way ahead in terms of what we're losing on a sort of day-to-day or annual basis. But with all that comes huge costs. You know, we're protecting a, a, a small remnant population of rhino, the only sort of last um, un, unmanaged population, but by that I mean be no translocations. We've got 70 men dedicated to just looking after them. So, you know, there's a huge budget associated with that. The same thing applies to elephant. Um, the whole ivory trade is, you know, financially driven by the the, the value of that um, commodity. Because at the end of the day, it is a commodity in most people's eyes. And so, as the price rises, we see the poaching increase, uh, which means you've got to you know step up your act to try and contain it. Um, we've been very fortunate in our area where I think last year we only lost two elephant. In touch with this year, we've only lost one. That's a population of probably you know, three and a half thousand elephant. So, and the reason behind that is not because our security guys are sort of top-notch Navy SEALs. It's because they're integrated into the community. The community are on our side and not against us. So when an elephant does go down, probably eight times out of ten, we get the guys and recover the ivory. So the risk outweighs the gain. But whilst there's a market there, the continue, you know, the, the problem's going to continue. Um, we're going to see other less well-protected populations um, getting decimated, which they still are as we speak. 
And, you know, the, the problem with that, of course, is it's all about the market. We can do our bit to contain it on the ground. But while there's a market there, which for now is the Far East mainly, um, and the prices continue to go up, then the, you know, the battle's not going to be over. In terms of, um, as you just said, the community sees the value in wildlife, and it, it's through an economic benefit, and which makes perfect sense. We all need to benefit some way or another to, to get on with our lives. So in, in hindsight of this recent burn of 105 tons of ivory, in your community, the area that Big Life operates, did the local communities, were they for it or were they against it? And do they see the value of burning it and that the message that KWS was trying to send to the world, did it take there and do you think it will take and by take I mean stick for the future uh, I, I'm not sure how important that message was to our community um, I think the first reaction would be when you look at the, the value associated with that burn you know their immediate reaction would be to say you know well we'd like some more schools we'd like some more roads we'd like whatever um, but in the big picture, it's a no-brainer in my book. While there's a market there, the killing is going to continue. And if all the governments can make the stand that they will not tolerate any poaching, they won't put any sanction the trade in ivory, then you know that, that can only drive down the price in the long run. And then, as you were saying before, the work ahead becomes a little easier when you take that one piece out of the equation. The value, the market value of ivory. If there is no market value for ivory, we can remove that, that piece that and stop, move forward. Stop. You take that market away, the killing will stop overnight. Good point. I hope everybody heard that because there's a lot of contention uh, over the burn and the argument is, yes, the money could have been used for conservation, but those of us who have been in this a long time understand that that equation just doesn't work so hopefully we can put an end to the demand for ivory which is a lot of work ahead of us but this brings us to a very personal story and uh, in terms of a community coming behind a single individual elephant Tim the elephant can you tell us a little bit about him um, Tim is one of the um, biggest Tuskers in Africa, I'd say. Um, he's, he's unique because you've got to remember when poachers go in to kill elephants, they obviously target the big bulls first because they carry the most ivory. So there's not many, uh, what we call the 100-pounder club um, left in Africa. And he's you know probably 130, maybe 140 even. He's been very much in the limelight and you know we've he's been speared twice not by poachers he was speared by farmers now because he was raiding crops um which i think tells us a story of what lies ahead for us you know we've got to contain that whole conflict issue obviously you know we we've got to um look after individuals like tim but it's it's very easy to get carried away by the individual and sadly a lot of the conservation world they focus on the individuals you know, look at that lion that got killed in Zimbabwe. What was his name? Cecil. Cecil. 
you know, the, the uproar that went on across the planet about him getting killed when, when actually, you know, I don't know how many lions a day were getting killed in conflict situations. And, you know, emotion takes over and, you know, it's, it's, it's not right. But what it's telling us is that there is a big problem there. And, you know, we've got to get on top of conflict and we've got to get on top of the poaching. And that's a good point because, as, as we said, individuals do matter. But when you're looking at large landscape species survival plans in situ in a place like uh, where big life operates or any of the other concessions where conservation is working and models are coming along and we're addressing these issues, individuals matter like Tim because you've known him for so long and he becomes kind of like a friend. Um, but on the larger landscape side, we need to look at the whole and I think you're very right that we have a tendency here in the West to forget all the big issues in favor of one animal. The point with Cecil, you're right. Lions are killed every day. Ten or twelve are killed a week in Botswana for cattle conflict and trophy hunting. Or I think they put a ban on lion hunting. But what Cecil did do was raise global awareness about the plight of lions that it got turned to one individual lion and everybody's rallying around the knee-jerk emotion is kind of off to the point and we as conservationists have our work cut out for us to bring it back to point which is lions in general and the overall issues that are facing lions for the future are we going to have them 5, 10, 15 years from now and you're absolutely right the way to deal and address this is to work with communities like your do like Big Life is doing and raise the intrinsic value mindset of wild living with wildlife coexisting with it and um, Big Life has done an incredible job um, with a whole lot of work a lot of history and a lot of work ahead to do this. So what are some of the things Big Life needs? We've talked about the fence and um, Wild Eyes is working on getting a grant together to help build that fence. But here's your opportunity to tell the world what does Big Life need so that you can carry on this incredible long-term uh, long work and mindset view. What do you need? <laughs> I know it's a long list, but, you know, let's start somewhere. I could talk, I could talk all night on this. <laughs> um, we've sort of built up quite a big machine now. You know, we've got 300 men in the field. We've got a, um, huge expanses of farmland that we need to stop wildlife getting into. Um, you know, just every kilometer of a fence, and that is $10,000. And we've got the conflict issues on the land. We've got to keep funds coming in to, um, you know, keep that going. We need visitors to Kenya. You've got to remember every um, visitor that we get here. I don't like calling them calling them tourists. They're, they're visitors um, coming to see what we've got here. It's so important because it brings food onto so many tables. Conservation fees generate conservation capital. Um, visits to lodges generate wages for barmen, room guys, guides, all that. So we need that industry to survive. It's a big call. 
and outside of the industry itself, because so many things happen in the world, if someone wants to donate, where does their money go? Well, we've just answered where their money goes. Um, How can people donate? Through the website? Yep. I think there's an easy way on on the website where, you know, donations can be put in and even... The, the different components of what we're doing, whether it's security, fences, carnival, compensation, it's all there, supporting communities in terms of um, bursaries for school kids to get to school, whatever. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's quite easy to do it. And what's important and what you've made clear today and the, the three conversations with you, with Nick, and with Tom has pointed out that conservation is multi-layered and uh, it's it's not one simple A to B to C. It's convoluted, it's complex, but it does work. And it does require funding. And it requires funding from the first world because we have the money. Um, as Tom had pointed out, the local communities are just getting by. So in order to make all of this work, as you just said, it requires funding. So please, listeners, donate. You've just heard... a a trilogy about big life and a conservation organization that functions, that works, that requires keeping going into the future to make this happen. If we want elephants, we want lions, and we want Africa, Kenya, to and, and places to visit uh, to, to see the magnificence that's there. So your donations are well put to use in an organization like Big Life. So please donate. Give up a latte for a week. Give up a bottle of water for a week and use that to donate. Um, I can't say it any stronger than that. Donate to Big Life. You could donate to Wild Eyes and we're going to give it to Big Life to help build this fence. There's so many things we can do that will have a huge effect in a place very far away from us, whether we visit or not. But, you know, as uh, Richard just said, Go visit. It's important to bring the visitor dollars in and that visitor experience to come back home and tell people what you learned and what you saw. So, Richard, we've got maybe a minute left here or so. Anything we missed that you'd really like to tell our audience? I guess thank you is the only thing I can say. Um, you know, all that we're doing is totally dependent on the goodwill. Uh, of the first world to dip into their pockets and help maintain this incredible um, life that we've inherited. And, um, you know, we've got to keep it going. And you made a good point. The goodwill of us here in the first world really does have a tremendous impact on the goodwill of the communities within the Big Life Foundation umbrella. And that's the way it works. We all work together and we can create a safe place for our wild world to continue. So unfortunately, we're out of time today. Richard, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I've known of you for so long. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say my bit. Absolutely. And we'll keep in touch. And uh, listeners, go to biglife.org. Donate. Please donate. And if you need to understand why, read through some of the website because there's a whole lot going on. So that's it for today, Our Wild World. My guest, Richard Bonham, and this is Ellie Weiss. 
Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.